Every kingdom divided against itself turns into a desert, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. From the Gospel of Matthew, as translated by Willis Barnstone in the Poems of Jesus Christ. Firepit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 36, Blue. The seizures stop, or else become less noticeable. Thoughts come. The more disturbing, the more painful, the more determined you become. Ideas blend together. Things fall apart. You can't shake the feeling. You played some role in that. Investigations, interrogations, incarcerations, all leading to this moment. Fear infests corridors, common areas, infects those places of education, worship, entertainment. You seek Colonel Marsh in obvious areas on each floor. The Phoenix Law Division, police outposts, the now empty stockade. Confused faces turn. Bodies make space instinctively. They see the uniform. They hate the uniform. Or they hate you. After all that has happened in recent days, why the hell shouldn't they? If only they knew your sacrifice, what you were willing to do to save them, to free them. A man is known by his deeds, your father told you, before dying suddenly, before leaving you and your God-fearing mother alone. You cling to memories of both of them, gestures of affection words to live by, temptations to resist. Take these experiences, mold them together, rewrite family history, find meaning. Some half-intellectually honest rationale to risk your life to save the weak, the lost, the fools, and their overlords. Find some reason, Cuddy. Find Colonel Marsh, your earliest protector your mentor, your benefactor, your... Dana will have an answer. She will take responsibility. She will make sense out of all of this. Give you an order. Take command of Lieutenant Baker and Corporal Reed. Discipline them. Exonerate you. Make things normal. As you hotwire the electronic lock on Colonel Marsh's quarters, you think to yourself, what in the hell is normal about any of this? After all, you are a man of two worlds, a leader, a 
uniformed security officer trapped underground. You do the bidding of a faceless council, a soulless computer. Then, poured into a coffin-shaped machine, your consciousness is stripped from your body by technology you don't pretend to understand. Everything that makes you who you are is transported into a false-fleshed, lifeless robot. Sparks fly from exposed wires. Gloved hands pry back the compartment door. What would be easy for the robot body strains your human muscles. But you are inside. You could count on one hand how many times you've been here. Usually, you meet the colonel at the division or the barracks, your living space. What you recall is Dana's meticulousness, symmetry, order, right angles, everything in its place, nothing sentimental or honorific displayed. But what you find is a tiny world out of balance, the unmade bed, a metal chair turned over at a desk covered with printed paper, scraps, and notes indicating a mind out of order. Something sinks in you. Not fear, not confusion. Deep disappointment finding yourself here. An invasion of privacy, a violation, and then anger. Why has it come to this? Marsh was always there when you needed her, when your father died, when your mother followed him into the grave. The colonel's was a trusted hand on your shoulder, guiding you. They loved you so much, Leonard, she told you. She displayed tears you were too numb to let flow. You will make them proud. She helped you transition from being just another orphan to finding confidence as a teenager, a junior volunteer in the law division. She was everything to you. Everything. She didn't approve of your short-lived, mostly physical relationships with women. Don't take advantage of them, Dana warned, and don't let them take advantage of you. What she didn't know was you were always looking for the one, someone your parents would approve of. Someone strong-willed, like Dana Marsh, who would challenge you, make you stronger, feel your emptiness, heal your brokenness. You scan the room, the spare, unmade bed, project-issued blanket drawn back, unwashed sheets. You find something under the foam mattress, a slender piece of plastic, a circular disc on one end, some kind of electronic key. What is it? Why is it hidden here? You place the odd-shaped diskette in a pocket, walk a few steps to the table, search the drawers, personal files, pill containers, amphetamines, barbiturates, appetite suppressants, benzos, anticonvulsants, vitamins, narcotic painkillers. What the hell is all of this, you wonder? What's it for? You find the photo album, flip through it, pictures of a youthful Dana Marsh, an attractive woman without makeup, on the beach, long, deep brown hair, her impressive athlete's body glowing in the sun. She holds hands with another girl, close up, faces near, a delicate smile you've never seen. Images of Marsh with your father, her hero, his dark brown face, 
the thick mustache you emulate proudly. Dana's once sun-kissed body turned pale, the seriousness you've grown accustomed to. There, Dana and your father, Mac, your mother, pictures of you as a boy, well-disciplined, at least to a point. Near the back of the album, a photo hanging loose, a tattered image of four men, two you recognize instantly, General Benjamin Castro and your father, Charles McGillicuddy, their faces rugged, awkward smiles. The third man bears a resemblance to your friend, Dr. John Bath. The man's black hair is combed to one side. Eyes seem to gaze beyond the person taking the photo, sort of staring into the distance, something beyond them. His prominent nose appears to have been broken, reset, maybe broken again. It must be dear Midbath, John's father. Next to him, another man, short, slender, sickly-looking, sunken eyes. His hair is shorn in patches at the temples and just behind his hairline. A bent cigarette hangs from long lips. You turn the photo over and see the description in your father's hand. New York City, General Benjamin Castro, LTC Dearmid Bath, Colonel McGillicuddy, J. Devenu. You knew, of course, that your father was acquainted with these other men, but you've never seen the proof. And what were they doing side by side, posing with Jacques Devenu, Danielle's father, one of the suspected founders of the Phoenix Project's dissidents? Where did Colonel Marsh get this photo? Your father? And why did she keep it hidden? You sit at the modest desk. Breathe, Cuddy. Make sense of the perforated papers. An accordion of printed names, dates, cursory information. At the top of every page, you see ASCII-coded characters. Central processor slash mainframe request slash extraction download slash user GRP granted access all areas. Put it together. Why did Marsh have the massive pile of information downloaded directly from the central processor? She didn't have that kind of access. Or did she? You gaze at the words again. Extraction download request. User granted access. GRP. What is GRP? A code? Initials? A person? Scan the documents. It's hard to tell where they begin or end. Everything runs together. Are these surveillance reports? Data gleaned from electronic or other resources uploaded into the central processor? Hold the photograph in your hand. Place it on the printout. Use it to read each line, moving it down the page. Skim rows. Watch columns of specific dates, truncated descriptions of events. Words seem to hover. Birth. Expiration. Termination. Next to each of these words are names. Citizens from the Phoenix Project. Some of them living. Some long gone. You continue. See the text. Observation. Isolation. Evacuation. Recognize the names of suspected dissidents. Collaborators. Some who just got caught in unfortunate scenarios. You observe the names of those forced into foster care. 
abortions, suicides. Search the dot matrix paper in hexagonal gray type. Find your own name. See every arrest or detention you participated in. The dates of your decorations, promotions, milestones adding up to a distinguished career. Curiosity grips hard, seizes you. Flip through the rectangular pile. Search and find other names. Marsh. Bath. Ganaya. There it is, in computerized shorthand. The whittled-down distillation of lives without context. History. Accomplishments. Cataloged opinions without meaning. You are an unlikely voyeur, peering into Marsh's personal life. Failed relationships with men. Secret romances with women. Each time she was called before the Shadow Council to explain some decision. Each time they rewarded her for her loyalty. And then, every time Marsh stood up for you, despite what was in her best interests. And then, here. Reduced to names, dates, and incomplete sentences. Those citizens for whom Lieutenant Colonel Dana Marsh signed warrants for arrest or covert termination more than one occasion. Now, too many to count. Too many times the word authorized appears next to her name and the name of some dismissed, forgotten citizen. Shake your head, Cuddy. No. How can this be? Why would Dana participate in such actions? No explanation is given. Only the nagging excuse under the heading, Council. Those words in quotes. Authorized. Search for John's information. See the description. D-Bath slash C-O-Bath slash J-Bath. Dermid. Caitlin. John. Numerous entries early in the text track Dermid's career. Efforts to establish a supply chain, emergency services, medical and other personnel responsive to citizens, not the council. Efforts challenged by Al-Jamal Ganaya. UC entries. Warnings about providing food, supplies, and goods to unauthorized citizens. You see nothing about termination or exile. But there, clearly in capitalized letters, along with your father's name, an entry from the same date and time, that word disappeared. It was the last day you saw your father, the day Dana came to your family residence, knelt beside you, explained that your father, Charles, had had a heart attack in the line of duty. Now, see the entry. Dear Midbath, disappeared. Charles L. McGillicuddy, disappeared. What does it mean? How in the hell did someone disappear from a closed society like the Underground Phoenix Project? Where did they go that pinhole cameras and surveillance droids didn't see, couldn't follow, If there was no hatch... Your breathing is shallow. No, you think. There is an explanation. Or are you projecting? Making unearned associations? (sighs) That sounded like something John would say. What would the academic, your fellow explorer, deduce if he saw what you saw? 
if he knew your father was listed dead the same day his father was supposedly exiled. Did, did, did they escape the project together? Seek help on the other side of the rumored hatch? Or were they terminated? Quietly dispatched into the ether without fanfare. And what of your mother, John's mother? Scramble to find her name. The data reveals your Kenyan-born mother suffered a series of health issues before being diagnosed with cancer. What was documented was a swift expiration near the words, Resources to prolong illness exhausted. COD. Discretionary euthanasia. Feel tension in your muscles. Acid fill in your esophagus. Pain biting in your guts. None of it means anything, you think. Just words. Stupid words on wasted paper. There was a better answer somewhere. You'll find Dana. She'll explain. She'll make it right. Or, you think, she'll lie. And if she does, you'll know. You'll force her to tell you. You stand. Anger wells. You reel a little. Your feet. The world. Unsteady. Not another seizure. You just need rest. Time to collect your thoughts. To continue searching. You lay back on Marsh's unmade bed. Steal a few deep breaths. If she returns, you'll be here. You'll brace her here. Feel heavy lids close. Go to that place where you imagine your parents as they were. What they were. Brave founders of the Phoenix Project. Heroes before... Before everything fell apart. Testing. One, two, three. Testing. You awaken to the sound of a loudspeaker. Find yourself in Colonel Marsh's bed. Sit up. Glance around. Think. What does the scene tell you? Marsh left in a hurry. Left everything the way it was. She's not coming back. Not here. Or was she taken? Gotta get moving, you think. Keep moving until you find her. Regain your strength. Before you leave, glance back at the stack of information piled on the desk. Surveillance. Consolidation without context. Find the razor in your uniform. Flick it open. Stab the steel into the heavy brick of paper. Carve your mark. I know. Push the door open. The voice on the loudspeaker continues as you wind down the empty residence hall. Citizens of the Phoenix Project, thank you for your time, your patience, your discipline over the past weeks, months. Our skilled, devoted law enforcement division, led by Colonel Dana Marsh, worked with every other Phoenix Project division to investigate conspiracy and alleged terrorism. The citizens of the Phoenix Project are all either in their quarters or have joined the rest of the crowd at the trial of the dissidents. You should be there. It's your duty. But right now, that's the last place you want to be. For too long, those self-identified as dissidents... Find the nearest lift. Doors open slowly. A digital panel flashes inside, out of operation. A crimson halo bursts over your head. Ignore it. Open the panel. Pry back steel. Strip wire. Locking clamps secure the elevator in place. 
service doors above you open. Reach overhead. Crane your neck. Hard, calloused hands pry the doors open. Get a grip. Pull your massive frame up, through the ceiling, into the bones of the Phoenix Project. You can go anywhere from here. All the way to the command center. To the depths of the squalor. Standing, legs apart on the lift, gaze into the darkness. The reality behind your world. That blending of old and new. Used and recycled tech. Screwed down walls. Seamless partitions. Who, you wonder? Who the hell was the architect behind this multiplex of both functionality and chaos? Pursue fat fiber optic cable. Grasp wide rungs on ladders. Swing from left to right. The lift tube is octagonal. Closed passages lead to narrow ports of entry throughout the project. From here, you notice the lifts you knew went up and down are also designed to move sideways, to change tracks, to turn and slide on their sophisticated tethers. Climbing, you hear General Castro address the citizens. I've heard more than enough, to be frank. I've seen many trials in my life, both just and unjust. I've seen grandstanding, propaganda, spin, and every kind of lie. But I've never been so disgusted with anything as I am this kangaroo court. Castro's phlegmatic, throaty voice echoes, commanding, radiating gravitas. Even here, pulling yourself upward, you feel it, believe it. And you know, as much as Dana Marsh was your childhood protector, your commander, it is Benjamin Castro who has transformed you. He is your leader. He is your guide. Find the upper level. The field of ducks outside, just above the Phoenix Command Center. You pause, listening to the General's voice reverberate. Have none of you any sense of perspective? Have none of you any appreciation for our situation? Here we are, at the end of the world. Smash the screwed down console. Slither into the polygonal crawl space. Down the J-shaped tube. Pain in your abdomen comes and goes. You're spit out of the tube, falling eight feet or more into the circular command center. There, you lay, getting your bearings, preparing to fight, defend yourself. Faces turn, two, three. None confront or move to seize you. What the hell? A young, pimple-faced girl with brown hair peers across a console. Hey, you can't be in here. A Hispanic man steps forward. Get to your feet. Look them over. You've never seen them before. They're young. Too young to have the responsibility of operating this sensitive area. Scan the workstations. Segmented ops stations. Screens lit with images from the trial room. General Castro versus the council. When I was first revived from stasis, I kept my tongue to myself. I was willing to withhold my judgment of the council's directives until I knew more about the current circumstances. Now that I have seen the insanity of the council's orders firsthand, seen the way you imprison your elderly, seen the way you stifle any dissent in order to maintain your power, I have seen enough. This project exists for a reason. 
This project exists to preserve the human race during a time of great crisis, but with the purpose of recolonizing once the crisis has passed. Where is everyone? You walk to the elevated center of the room. Why aren't these stations... They're gone, the girl says, operating their program-specific sections, securing the critical areas of the project. Look at the vacant law enforcement station, the resource distribution consoles. Everybody's gone, you say. But what are you doing here? The Hispanic man stands across from you, hands braced on a square desk. Someone has to monitor the transmission, patch the council into the assembly hall. You shake your head, confused. The, the council members are separated, the girl explains. We transmit their, their images and their voices into the... Cut her off. Show me. Who are they? Where are they? I want to see them. The girl, the man, and another lurking female technician exchange glances. I can't do that, the man near you says. Do it. Council members are protected, the girl shudders. They are issued encryption transmitters protecting their identity, their faces, their voices, their location. You don't understand the technology, but you see she is sincere, knowledgeable despite her age, but not curious. Walk the room, take in the feel of metal, plastic, composite. See Benjamin on the ancient curved monitors. I am not a citizen of your project, although I was there at the beginning. I am a relic from an older time, crippled by stasis, and I have no doubt my body's days are numbered. But I will not die a witness to the indefinite imprisonment of humanity in a filthy bunker somewhere beneath a world where other humans need help, when the people of this project could do so much to help if only they had the resolve to do so. Your attention settles on an archaic, unused console. You point. What is that? The little female technician hiding behind her workstation peers out. She is older than the others. Perhaps Indian, Pakistani. It, it's an old, it's an old radio transmitter and receiver. Her voice is shaky, but authoritative. Radio? Yes. For, for contacting, well, for reaching out. It hits you, thinking aloud. To those up there, you gaze at the ceiling, the port you dropped through. On the surface, the Hispanic man and plain girl exchange glances. No one has transmitted in years, the Asian woman murmurs. No one in the project, or no one on the surface? She shrugs. Does it work? You recall a conversation in the laboratory, your team questioning, seeking ways of contacting those above ground, contacting potential allies without risking giving information about the project or simulacra. No one's turned it on in years, the woman hesitates. You grit your teeth watching General Castro brandish a fist, condemning the dissidents and faceless counsel. They gave up, you say, stopped sending, stopped receiving. Or were they given orders? The council, the computer. Someone made the decision to stop calling out into the void. 
to stop receiving information about what was happening on the surface. Find yourself pacing. Think, Cuddy. Where in the hell is Marsh? She's not in the division. She's not in her compartment. She's not here. Observe. Scared faces turn to the monitors. Watch. Cameras zooming in. Refocusing. Corporal Reed's truncheon battering John Bath. A mist of blood. The crowd surrounding them. Law enforcement volunteers. Phoenix citizens. You should be there. Could you stop this? And then it comes to you. A long fuse looking for a spark. Marsh understood from experience. Gobs of time observing silently. Weighing in vocally. Backing down. Pushing back. Maintaining her position. Her grip on the world of enforcement. After the riots. The arrests. The colonel understood the human condition clearly. Resist. Retaliate. Regroup. But her orders were clear long before the events of the past week. Protect the project. Protect the heart of the project. The computer. At all costs. Instinctively, you reach into your pocket. Find the unusually shaped half-disc. The keycard you plucked from Colonel Marsh's mattress. Silently curse Reed. That gratuitous bastard Lieutenant Baker who loosed uninitiated teenagers on their fellow citizens, turned validated, aged-out volunteers on children. They were convinced they were on the right side of the council, the computer. Damn them for what they made you do. Where is it, you ask? Blank looks all around. The computer, the central processor. They shake their heads, afraid, frozen. More cogs in a machine grinding to a halt walk to each console. Do you have a schematic? A global map of the project? How, you wonder? How did the engineers and maintenance personnel find their way around the plumbing, between the walls, hidden cracks leading to closed infrastructure, piping and power cords to and from every level, each junction? I always heard, the petite Asian woman says, the CPU was in the basement, beneath, below the squalor, the other woman adds. The Hispanic man glares at them. You nod. Think it through. The creators of the underground buried the most important part of the project first, secured it where few could access it, a place easily defended where only those with the need could go. Of course, you nod. Please return to your domiciles immediately. The project is on temporary lockdown. Those in the command center watch you stand on a computer desk, leap at the hole in the drop ceiling, ascend into the ductwork. From here, you have access to every level. You can bypass the cameras. Fix your paracord tightly. Descend the length of the Phoenix Project. Become that mythological bird obtaining new life. Not by arising from the ashes of its predecessor, but diving nose first into the blurred wasteland, into the squalor. Please, the council asks that no one resist or attempt to violate our orders. Law enforcement John didn't feel them lifting him, but somehow he found himself laying on the lab's cold metal table. He gazed up, saw flickering fluorescent tubes, funnels, wiring. 
His right eye was occluded, filled with blood, his face numb. What he heard was muffled by fluid seeping from his ear. He was determined to maintain consciousness. Maybe, he thought, on some level, his desperate act of foolishness might confuse them, might convince Castro, Devenu, the others, that beneath his well-honed, snobbish exterior, he possessed some measure of bravery. Well, maybe. What do we do now? Chang asked. For once, her tone implied genuine concern. We have to stick together. The general's voice was firm. All of us. We hole up here, Devenu continued. All that matters now is the mission. We continue what we started. There was a brief pause. Power supplies hummed, hydraulics engaged. I took the liberty, Chang explained. The coffins are prepped. John turned toward the sound of voices, felt a thin line of metallic-tasting blood and saliva stream across his left cheek. What about bath? Castro asked. John felt Dr. Ganaya's slender fingers at his shoulder. She dabbed at his face, the back of his head, with a wet cloth. Do what you can, Mural, Daniel said. Ganaya touched John's forehead, his temple, his jaw. How many times did they hit him? She asked. John couldn't help but laugh. When he coughed uncontrollably, pain shot the length of his spine into the back of his head. What's funny? Mural sounded distressed. Not how many. How hard. John's whole face hurt when he forced a smile. Doctor? Castro's muffled voice came from somewhere behind John. Huh? Bath groaned. Not you, Chang said. Oh, John sighed. He tried remembering the altercation with the corporal, playing it back as if he was outside himself. That thought led him back to Cuddy. The Major, he slurred. Cuddy. The rest of the group ignored John. Mural left his side. John bleakly overheard them say something about obvious external abrasions, lacerations, no internal injuries. Ganaya plead for access to medical equipment, a more sterile environment, painkillers, and medication. You'll have to use what you have here, Ganaya, Danielle said, until we know who's with us. Her voice trailed off. John waited. What else had she meant to say? Take care of him, Benjamin said. John coughed again. Easy, John. Meryl searched the back of his head for wounds. Her touch was almost soothing. Mike. John forced a congested whisper. Mike will help us. Another long pause. Then, John felt Meryl's hands at his elbow. Without warning, she slid a needle into his vein. A swift, cool sensation shot up Bath's arm, cascaded over his torso, into his privates. All he could see was the color blue. Blue electricity. Blue skies. The dyed blue hair that set Harumi Gale apart from every other woman he had ever... Every other woman. His vision diminished, turned spotty. He heard movement nearby, then behind him. Everything is automated, Chang's voice warbled somewhere. You'll only have to bring us out if... John didn't hear the rest. What he could discern was the distant sound of the transference modules opening. Minutes later, they closed. Power conduits hummed. The laboratory, the whole world seemed to vibrate around Bath, inside him.
don't pass out, he thought. As General Castro, Daniel Devenu, and Donna Chang entered the brown fog of the green stream, John Bath slipped from consciousness. A sardonic grin fixed to his face. For once in his life, he knew no intellectual conundrum, felt no rush of nerves or anxiety. In that moment, John Bath was everything he ever was, and simultaneously, nothing. In disbelief, non-belief, he achieved what spiritualists, monks, theosophists, conspiracy theorists spent their whole lives seeking. And he understood clearly, elegantly, there is no hatch. There never was. Pit Creative Group Production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGree, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis, with contributions from Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner. Music by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGree. The sound effects used in the production of Aftermath are used with permission by the creators and links to these sound effects can be found in the description section of each episode. Please visit our website, aftermathpodcast.net, for updates, original artwork and music, character dossiers, and more. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at Fire Pit Creative Group Official, on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, on Facebook at facebook.com slash group, and on YouTube at Fire Pit Creative Group. Aftermath and its story, characters, music, and artwork are copyrighted by Fire Pit Creative Group.